0: Rose, and this is Top of Mind. I have been a radio journalist for two decades, but a few years ago, I found myself avoiding the news for long stretches because of how depressing and divisive it all seems. I still wanted to be informed and engaged on important issues though, and I figured I couldn't be alone in that. So we created this podcast. Each week we tackle one tough topic in a way that will challenge you, help you feel more empathy, and empower you to become a better citizen, a kinder neighbor, and a more effective advocate. Today, does the way we think about adoption in America miss the mark? We just knew that our birth mom
1: could not raise us and that uh, our parents wanted twins, and, and there we go.
0: This is Julie Ryan McHugh. She's an adoptee and author of the memoir, Twice a Daughter.
1: I always knew that I was adopted and it wasn't a secret. I think my parents worked really hard at making sure we were happy. Usually around the time of our birthday, my parents would pull us into the living room and we called it kind of like a checking in and they you know, profess how much they wanted us, and they were uncomfortable conversations. I always felt like I needed to say, I'm fine. I don't need to know anything more about my adoption story um, because I sensed that my parents wanted to hear that. And certainly in the era in which I grew up, which was, um, I was adopted in 1959, You didn't really talk about being adopted outside the home. There was a little bit of a shame involved. And I remember um, girlfriends at a sleepover one time saying, you guys are adopted, right? And I just was horrified that somebody outside my immediate family knew that, that little secret and would bring it up. So adoption wasn't something I really liked thinking about or talking about. We're in a precarious situation. You know, Um, we have a family that cares for us, we hope, and uh, loves us, and we're happy enough. But I mean, adoption is really about loss. All of the players in the equation, infertility for my parents, the shame of being an unwed mother for my birth mom, and I lost my identity. My parents considered my sister and I their daughters. And so anything that happened before our adoption was like the sleep
0: was wiped clean. We tend to view adoption in America as a win-win situation. A child in crisis, placed with new, stable parents who want to build a family, everyone finally in a position to thrive. If you don't have personal experience with the adoption system, you are probably familiar with that fairy tale-like narrative. But even if you are closer to the process, there's still a lot that's hard to fully understand about the adoptee experience, unless you've lived it. So today we're focusing on the perspective of people who were adopted, from different eras and with different stories. And what we've come to find is that no matter when or how adoptions happen, assumptions about what's best can miss the mark. This season, on Top of Mind, we are assessing assumptions so how can we do better by those impacted by the adoption process and create a system that enables children and families to really thrive? Well, let's start by looking to the past to see what's changed and what hasn't. Julie Ryan McHugh and her twin sister were adopted as newborns in 1959. This was during a time when premarital pregnancies and single motherhood were taboo, and adoption was seen as a remedy to that shame. These kinds of adoptions were defined by secrecy. Closed adoption was uh,
1: really the only choice. Closed adoption is set up to protect the rights of the parents, uh, adoptive parents' rights, and the privacy of birth parents. It's not set up to honor the identity and sense of belonging for adoptees. And, uh, you know, birth mother used an alias on my original birth record. My birth father's name wasn't on there, but that was all legal back then we were three weeks old. We were adopted through Catholic Charities in Chicago. And then my mom, uh, who's also very Catholic and very religious, she believed, and I guess I do too, that uh, it was divine intervention that uh, we were meant to be their daughters. You, You believe that too? I do believe that. Yeah. Especially since I've come full circle with my story and have a lot of um, details about my birth families. I think I really got the best end of the deal. But um, it was complicated. I was, in the adoption world, there's this term called living in the fog, and I definitely was one of those adoptees where, you know, I I was happy with my existence. I had a full sibling that I grew up with. I was really pretty
0: okay not knowing. McGee would stay in that headspace until she was 30 years old, married, and with a family of her own. It was her husband who first encouraged her to start looking. At the time, the laws in Illinois did not provide adoptees any avenue to access their sealed birth records. So when Julie McGee sent her first letter to Catholic Charities, the response was short. It was, nothing can be shared at this time. And that, she thought, was that. 20 more years went by. McGee was 50. Doctors detected a lump in her breast, and they did a biopsy, and she realized that she had no idea whether breast cancer was in her genes or not. And I have three daughters and a son, and I thought,
1: oh, this is not about just me now. I have a responsibility to my
0: children to give them health information that I don't have. So she started searching again, and this time— the law was on her side. Illinois had passed a bill in 2010 allowing private researchers access to closed adoption records on behalf of adoptees. She hired one of those intermediaries. And so she was the intermediary was able to find the woman that was my birth
1: mother. She reached out for her and it was 3 days before my birthday and the intermediary got a letter from her and said I don't want anything to do with this. I want no contact with these people and don't call me again. It was was devastating. And I didn't understand it as a mother myself, how someone could be so cold and heartless. And I met with the social worker and she really helped me understand that what was happening was my birth mother had not been prepared for my contact. I was ready to do it, but she wasn't ready. And she instilled in my sister and I, you know, don't give up hope on this. She knows you're interested in seeing her and making contact. Give her time, she may change her mind.
0: Now remember, McGue was still grappling with the possibility of breast cancer. She had this big health scare. So the stakes were higher than when she had started looking back in her 30s. The intermediary sent another letter, explaining some of that context and asking the birth mother again for her health records. That turned out to make a difference. McHugh's birth mother picked up the phone and called the intermediary. She asked a lot of questions about her daughter's health, and she changed her mind about not having contact with Julie McHugh.
1: And, you know, then I got the phone call from the intermediary saying, you won't believe who I just talked to, and she would like to exchange cards and letters with you.
0: Tell us about that first meeting you and your sister went. Oh my gosh. I have written so much about this moment and I have had people say to
1: me before, you know, what would you say is the happiest moment in your life? And I would say, in, in a, I mean, I love being a mother and meeting my husband and all of that, but I think seeing her and meeting her was everything that I imagined it would be. And I think I didn't realize until I met her how much I needed that to to figure out really who I was and where I belonged. My sister and I and our husbands went um, to visit where she lived and we stayed in a hotel and we were (laughs) sitting in the lobby waiting for this gray van to pull into the parking lot. And we saw them get out of their van and walk up to the hotel. She was in her 70s. She's was she's smaller than my sister and I. We certainly have um, similarities. And uh, just that's that whole moment is in slow motion for me still. It really it was a beautiful moment.
0: What did she share with you about the circumstances of your adoption that that you didn't know?
1: Yeah, well, back then, um, religion was a big issue. And my birth father was not Catholic. He was Uh, Protestant. He refused to convert, which meant for her, you can't get married in the Catholic Church if the person you're marrying, it doesn't convert. And that meant that she had to figure out how to take care of her situation all by herself. I mean, abortion was not an option at all at, at that time period in our country. And certainly because she was Catholic, she wouldn't have done that anyway. Adoption was the only alternative. So she never saw us. She never held us. She did not even know she had given birth to twins until they told her afterwards. She so internalized this shame that was put on her from society that she was a sinner. And she still looks at herself, I think, um, as somebody that has a big secret. I'll use an example. I've gone to visit her in her senior center, and she will not let my sister and I sign in the guest book because there's a little spot next to our name that says relationship to the client. And so she fills that in. And I don't know what she writes in, in there. I don't know if she writes friend or relative or whatever, but I'm sure she doesn't write daughter. And I asked her one time about it, and she said, you know, these are my peers that I grew up with, and I'm happy for you to come visit, but I don't need their scrutiny or their judgment.
0: McHugh's birth mother was also not eager to help the adopted twins track down their birth father. And when they pressed, she gave McHugh the wrong name. But McHugh was still able to track him down and get his medical history. He refused any other contact, however, so McGue and her twin sister never met their birth father. They did connect with his kids, though. their half-siblings. Nowadays, adoption stories rarely play out like this. When McGew and her sister were placed for adoption, only 5% of domestic infant adoptions were open, where there's some level of contact between the birth family and the adoptive family. Now, that equation has completely flipped. The vast majority are open— Much of that can be credited to adoptees like McGue, who have spoken out about their experiences. But even though the norms have changed, many of the underlying assumptions are as prevalent as ever. Primarily the notion that an adoption into a stable family is a happy resolution that closes the door on a child's past trauma. And there's the whole narrative around made-for-TV birth family reunions, says McGue. I never wanted to just be
1: like either my adoptive parent's child or my birth parent's child, I really thought it was possible that we could all be a family. That's what I envisioned could happen. Maybe that's, you know, like a Hallmark movie. Hmm. Um, That's not what happened. Certainly my dad was a lot more supportive than my mom and they did come around. But there was a point when I found my birth mother and we were in reunion with her And my mom, (laughs) I still can't believe she said this. She stood up and she looked at me and she goes, I do not want that woman in my life. And so there was a line drawn in the sand. Over time, she did soften. I'm sure my dad had something to do with that. Um, And they never met. My birth mother and my adoptive mom, they're both still living. They both just turned 90 years old. My birth mom would have been more than willing to sit down with my mom and uh, talk with her about our childhood and whatever, but my mom just really could not go there.
0: How much of her response do you think is rooted in the way the adoption was structured, rooted in a system that was imposed upon her in order to have you and your sister be her daughters? I, I, I think... I think a good part of
1: it was the system, you know, at that time, um, as I said, closed adoption is really structured to protect the rights of the parents. And she believed that we were her children. And I think she had blinders on uh, as far as um, you know that there wasn't a set of biological parents that contribute to the equation. so she put she worked hard at putting our family together. And I think she deeply resented. Anything that would get in the way of disrupting her family.
0: She would have preferred that you'd never done the search, you think, to this yes. day? Oh yeah. And
1: now every once in a while I'll have coffee with her and she'll blow my socks off and say, How is your birth mom? I'm like, wow, we have really come a long way in 15 years that she can ask that question because that that wasn't anything I ever dreamed that she would ask me 15 years ago.
0: What rights do you think adoptees should be guaranteed in, in the adoption process? But throughout your story, there's this tension, you know, where you're like, "Why is my right to know <laughs> being trumped by my birth mother's right to keep herself secret to her privacy?" Right? What what, what do you think is the appropriate balance? What 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 does a, a an ideal or at least a healthy adoption arrangement guarantee for? a a child who's adopted?
1: I think the open adoption model that came into vogue in the 1990s is as healthy as we're going to get. There is access to information, family history, medical history, access to the birth parents if, you know, that is allowed. If there could be a relationship between the adoptive parents and the birth parents and not have them be adversarial. I'm not saying co-parenting but just you know more more exchange of information it's my personal opinion however that if a child can be adopted by a family member that would be the first the first one on the list and then to go outside the family would be i would consider the last resort why i think it's so important to understand where you come from and when you're when you're raised in a family that you don't have a physical, biological connection to. There's things you have to learn about one another. I, I like the idea of being raised by an auntie. At least it is a relative that that has stepped forward to um, be a part of your life and you get family history that way. I have had so many people over the course of my life say, oh, you're so lucky you were adopted. You know what? There is nothing lucky about adoption at all for anybody that's involved in it. Um, the people involved in adoption, parents, birth parents, adoptees, we all are in it because something happened. And to make it about secrecy, it makes it even worse. Everybody has lost something that comes to adoption and nobody's lucky in it.
0: Julie McHugh is the author of Twice a Daughter. It's her memoir of finding her biological parents as an adopted twin. Thank you so much for taking time today. I really appreciate it.
1: Thanks, Julie. I enjoyed the conversation.
0: For a lot of reasons, including social norms and the availability of birth control, there are fewer infants being placed for adoption in America today. Meanwhile, the foster care system has become the primary driver of adoption in this country. The children tend to be older when they're placed, so many of them know and even grew up with their biological families. It's about as open an adoption as you can get. But even though we've traded a system of secrecy for one that is much more transparent, our assumptions about adoption and what's best for adoptees can still fall short.
2: It was such a profound event in my life where it wasn't enough just to move and just say, you know, here's your new family. There was a lot of work that needed to be done that didn't get done until I loved care.
0: So next, we'll hear from a former foster kid who was adopted out of that system. I'm Julie Rose. This is Top of Mind. Jamerica Haynes-Lewis is a journalist, a crowned winner of the USA Ambassador Pageant, an actress and model, a motivational speaker, and a dedicated advocate for child welfare. Before all of that...
2: I grew up in Western Washington, and that's where I went into foster care. She was five years old. It's very much a fresh memory in a way. To respect my family's privacy, I won't go into details, but typically children are removed where there is a point of crisis in the family unit, and that is what happened with me. But I remember being taken away in a patrol car from my home to a foster home. My foster mom at the time, she was saying that, My younger sister and I, we were pretty frightened, but I remember that first day of being in her home, they were the Johnson family. I remember taking a bath, being fed a hot meal, uh, having my hair done and and being given pajamas and I just felt very safe. And so I did remember though, feeling scared at the same time though. It was many things (laughs) all at once. Um,
0: So tell me about the Johnsons, Mr. and Mrs. Johnson.
2: Oh, man, that was fun. It was, that is probably one of the best memories of my life, was being able to live with them. How old were they? Were they, like, your parents' age? Were they- Actually, so they were more like uh, grandpa and grandma. So they were in their golden years when we went to go live with them. Uh, they have both passed on, but I lived with them between the ages of five to ten, and We were family. We are family. I consider them still to be my family. I don't feel like they ever judged my sister or I. um, And I felt like they never judged my family. And we did everything together. You know, we shared meals. We went to church. We went on vacations. We played together. I miss them very much.
0: Were you in touch with your mom and your siblings during the time that you were with the Johnsons?
2: We were, you know, we would visit with them. When a child is a foster care, you know, visitation is a right. So you have the right to see your family. Um, for some of your listeners, they may not know it, but the goal of foster care is reunification with the bio family. It's not to adopt children. Now, as I mentioned, with my family and many other families, when a crisis happens, it's important to make sure that the family is stabilized so that everyone is safe.
0: So your expectation was that you'd go back and be with your mom. Of
2: course. Yeah, with my mom and my siblings and and with the rest of my family. But at the time, I was told we had to wait and see. Haynes Lewis
0: was one of four kids in her family. While she and her sister moved in with the Johnsons, her two older
2: siblings went to live with relatives. And I'm not quite sure why that happened the way it did, but that's not uncommon for siblings to be split up and to go live with different people in different homes.
0: Do you envy your siblings who were placed with family?
2: I don't envy them, at least not as an adult. As a kid, did you envy I, them? I did. It was like, oh, I want to go live with my family. Their lives weren't easier necessarily, though. That's the one thing I can appreciate as an adult, that we all had our struggles and we did the best that we could. And my family did the best that they could, you know. Um, my mom really tried hard to get her kids back. And I think that's um, something that sometimes people don't know is that parents do work hard and sometimes it doesn't work out, but that doesn't mean uh, a family is bad. And I think that's when it's really important to have compassion and allow people to have their dignity.
0: When did adoption enter the picture for you?
2: After my mother's rights were terminated, when I was 10 years old, I moved into a foster home Um, where it was intended for me to be adopted. It's also called a foster-to-adopt placement. Uh, It was very shocking for me because I thought by just waiting and being patient, I would be going home to my mom, and that didn't happen. So it was very hard for me uh, transitioning from the Johnsons to my new foster home,
0: the Johnsons, it turned out, were only interested in fostering. They never intended to adopt. So Jamaica Haynes-Lewis ended up in the home of a woman who did want to adopt a child.
2: I was officially adopted at the age of 13. We were at the courthouse in Seattle, Washington, and I remember feeling very nervous. And even though I was relieved that it happened, I also think there was a lot of just sadness as well and realizing, you know, I'm never gonna be a part of my birth family again, like other kids. And so I think I also too was trying to figure out where I fit family-wise, right? So I came from my biological family to the foster home that I lived in from five to 10. And then being in this home now where I'm adopted, I felt like there were all these expectations of being a part of a family through adoption. So for me, it was a lot to process. Mm. You say you were relieved to be adopted? Yeah, for me, it was like, is it going to happen? Is it not? There was just a lot of suspense. And so when it happened, it's like, okay, it happened. I don't have to think about, am I going to stay in foster care forever and age out? Or am I going to be adopted and be in this family? so, you know, there was a lot of praying involved. And one thing that really helped me cope during that time and beyond in my life, and even today, was my sense of faith. I remember one of my favorite Bible stories was David and Goliath. And at the time I was seven, when I learned about that Bible story. And for me, it was learning about how David was not only courageous, but how he faced this giant in the midst of being ridiculed and just facing uncertainty. and To me, foster care and and everything that was involved in it, you know, including just feeling out of control, it felt like this big giant in my life. But I did feel like if I remained faithful and hopeful, you know, I would be able to prevail beyond the situation. And even though it didn't look that way immediately and In the immediate years to come, I do feel that way today as an adult. I remember getting messages from people like, well, you were chosen. You know, you need to move on. It was hard for me. You know, I felt embarrassed that I had to be adopted out. And also, too, I think there's this idea that people are interchangeable. I think that is one of the most... (laughs) Like, harmful truths is that you can take a set of new parents and give it to a child and say this is your new family without considering, you know, the ambiguous loss that occurs when someone knows they still have a living parent, but that parent isn't there, right? No one can be replaced, you know, through moving a a child to a new family. It doesn't erase their past, and their is this thinking that that can all be washed away through this event, and it doesn't work that way. I wish I would have had someone tell me it wasn't my fault that I was not responsible for going into foster care. I wish someone would have said, I'm still valuable, I'm still lovable, but I am loved. I remember feeling like I had did something wrong I wish I would have been more accepted and seen in my grief. I got the feeling people weren't comfortable seeing that. They were confused by that. They didn't have the education. And I think also, too, it was triggering for them to see so much grief and angst in a child. And I wish someone could have just sat next to me during the times where I was crying or asking questions. I wish that people would have really tuned into that. There was a lot of work that needed to be done that didn't get done until I left care, until I sought those resources, like a counselor to talk to about what my feelings were. You know, being able to talk about some of the trauma I had experienced. And then when I got into the into the adoptive home, it was like, Well, you're adopted, you don't need any of that stuff. When in fact I really did need that support. Haynes
0: Lewis says adoptive parents need resources and support too.
2: Everyone has to do that work, you know, and that means going to a counselor and maybe talking about their own traumas that they've gone through, right? The grief of not being able to conceive and carry their own child. Those things have to be talked about. And that's what I mean when I talk about doing the work. So what's your status today?
0: Your your family identity? You're, You're still adopted? Are you still close with your adoptive family? Have you made contact with your biological family?
2: I would say it's, it's very much multifaceted. I did reconnect with my biological family and it's huge. So I have reconnected with a lot of my cousins, my biological mom. She actually texted me, happy Mother's Day. My adoptive family, you know, there's, there's still some challenges, but I, I would say it's good for what it's worth. And then, of course, you know, I still think about the Johnsons. I always talk about them um, when I'm out speaking to people about my experience. And then um, through them, all my foster brothers and sisters I met and all the kids they used to watch through their daycare they had, I'm still friends with them today. So I feel very blessed. And I think for me, what I learned through my experience, Julie, is how to create family. Like I think about being a journalist and my colleagues that I've met through this industry and competing in pageants and the family I've made through that. Like, I feel very blessed to have all these people in my life. And I don't think if I had not gone through foster care, I would have had learned how to cultivate family for myself.
0: How would you like to see adoption from foster care and even
2: removal into foster care changed? Every situation is unique. I have met peers who have been adopted from foster care whose parents were deceased. You know, so you have situations where that can provide a lifeline and family for a child. So I'm not against adoption. I feel that it is an option that should be done responsibly. I don't feel it should be done as a means to punish a parent who's impoverished, who's single, or uh, may not have a traditional family. So I think it's really important that that's an option that is really best for a child if they're in that situation. I think it should be a, a last resort. I don't think we should wait until crisis happens to the point where children have to be removed Um I feel that isn't safe. I feel it becomes more costly when we have to wait that long. I think there are things that people can do on a hyper-local level, which is get to know your neighbors and be there for people. I think sometimes, you know, families don't get along, but if communities can step in, whether it's through churches, uh, community centers, if there's a way where people can be included in, in the fabric of that community where they don't feel isolated. Because by the time the system is getting involved, you know, like any other system we have in our country, there's many people who need to be assisted for better or worse. And a system shouldn't take place of a community.
0: Jamerica Haynes-Lewis is a journalist, former foster kid, and advocate for child welfare. While adoptions from foster care are the most common form in America today, accounting for more than half of all adoptions, international adoptions are the least common at just 2% of the total number. But in many ways, they are the most conspicuous, thanks to movie stars like Angelina Jolie and Madonna, and just the plain fact that children adopted from other countries are generally a different ethnicity
3: and culture than their adoptive parents. I came from one world, went into another world, and my reality in which I came from for the first four and a half years of my life, I never saw that reality again.
0: International adoptions are fraught with a unique set of challenges and assumptions, and we'll explore
3: those next. I'm Julie Rose. This is Top of Mind. I was the kid who wanted every answer to every question I had around how did we get here, why are we here, why didn't you adopt through foster care, why did you choose Colombia, you had never been to Colombia, uh, why did you choose older children, why did you choose a sibling group? I had all the questions. This is Astrid Castro. I am an intercountry country transracial adoptee, and I am also the CEO and founder of Adoption Mosaic.
0: Ostrid Castro and her sister were adopted from Colombia in 1975 by Chris and Norm Reynolds, a white, middle-class American couple. International adoption rates had been increasing since World War II ended, though the system at the time was a patchwork and not well regulated. Because of that, Castro would not learn the true story of her origins until well into adulthood. Growing up, she only knew the narrative her adoptive parents gave her.
3: Uh, And they were very transparent about the fact that they knew very little to nothing and that they would always support us if it was something that we wanted to look further into in the future.
0: The Reynolds had planned to adopt through foster care, but because the couple moved around so much for work, they couldn't get qualified to foster in any one state. So they turned to an international adoption. But as to why they chose Colombia...
3: My dad's story is we went to an agency and the agency said Colombia is one of the quicker countries currently to uh, bring children home into your home and get to start building your family. And my mom's story is, well, Colombia... You know, it was a developing country, they had a need, the people are so beautiful, the landscape is so wonderful and gorgeous, and really wanted me and my sister to feel really good about where we were coming from. And, you know, we have these two parents who are functioning from two very different places in their own needs of creating a family and becoming parents.
0: Were they concerned at all about adopting children of a different race? than themselves of, of of raising two little girls with brown skin who didn't even speak English, I imagine, at the time you were adopted. Correct.
3: No, they, you know, like so many people during that time, it was what we call clean slate adoptions, love them as if you gave birth to them. Um, you know, maybe 10 years later, we started talking about you grew in my heart, not in my tummy, um, which is all very problematic in in the identity of how we came into our families. Uh, and so our parents were not given any education, any resources. Our mom, when we first arrived, had the intuition to bring in somebody into the home that spoke Spanish. And so she hired a bilingual nanny, somebody who spoke English and Spanish. And the social workers that came and did the three-month visit after we were placed, the social worker said, oh my goodness, no, don't do that. We need these girls to be able to speak English as quick as possible. So the goal was that we would uh, be able to speak English well enough to be able to acclimate into a school. Uh, So my sister and I uh, lost our Spanish completely within six months of arriving. And I would say if you were interviewing my parents today, uh, they would probably say that was their biggest parent
0: Ostrid Castro gives her parents, Chris and Norm Reynolds, a lot of credit. They were given bad advice by people they trusted, and they didn't have the tools or resources to support their Colombian daughters in all the ways they needed. But they really tried to help the girls form a healthy identity.
3: My parents, uh, at the time, in the 70s, they thought, okay, well, there isn't access to any Colombian restaurants but they did seek Mexican restaurants and they thought that that was the closest thing. Like every, every year on our birthdays, we would go to, I, I, I won't call out any names of Mexican restaurants, but not high quality, chain-like Mexican restaurants that had a mountain of cheese and just refried <laughs> brains spread across your plate, right? So
0: um would you have people trying to speak Spanish to you then as a child go into that Mexican restaurant what was that like for you to people to assume that you must be a
3: Spanish speaker well and it depends on who's making that assumption that i speak spanish if it's somebody who looks like me i instantly go into imposter syndrome uh, i instantly go to i'm sorry i wish get like can, can you just hold on a second? I want to tell you my entire life story. I was adopted. It's not my fault. And I do value where I come from. And I do, uh, you know, wish that I spoke Spanish and I would speak to you in Spanish, <laughs> all of that.
0: Is that a wound for you? That you don't speak fluent Spanish, that you lost that?
3: Absolutely. You know, language is an access to a culture and a community. And we also know that memory is tied with language, and so when we lost our language, we lost a lot of memory when it came to what we had experienced in Colombia. So we no longer had language to be able to talk about that.
0: What did you know about your birth mother? What did you believe about your birth mother as a child?
3: Uh, Your birth mother wanted to give you a better life. She was poor. We don't really know exactly uh, what the story is, but that was it. Was that something that
0: you thought about or talked about that you wanted to
3: do? Yeah, those, yeah, two very... Very different uh, questions. Yes, I thought about it all the time, constantly. Did we talk about it? No. People say to us all the time, oh, well, at least you had your sister. My sister is my full biological sister and we were adopted together, right? So, oh, at least you had each other to talk to. I remember as an adult, I said to my sister, did you grow up thinking about our mom very often? Which is such a crazy question to be asking your adult sister that you grew up with your whole life. And she said, of course I did. And I said, oh my gosh, like we were literally in two separate bedrooms thinking in isolation about something and we didn't have the language to know how to talk to each other about it. There's also a lot of stigma around what it means to talk about your birth and your existence before you were adopted, right? And so it means we're ungrateful if we have lots of questions or we wanna talk about adoption, right? And so my parents didn't have the language to teach us how to talk about it, so my sister and I never talked about it. If they had spoken Spanish or had learned Spanish before, they would have heard a narrative from my sister who had a lot of memories and a lot of things that she wanted and needed to talk about that Uh then got, got pushed away. I think our parents would have heard things like, I miss her. Right. And that launches into a whole, of course you do. And let's talk more about that. Or let's, you know, bring in a professional who can help us talk more about that or whatever. So it just would have snowballed into a much healthier existence around being adopted.
0: You finally got serious about looking for your birth mother when you were forty, forty-one, right? Uh, it was actually kind of on a whim. You were on vacation, heading on vacation to Colombia, which had become a habit for you and your your husband and daughter. And the way I understand it, kind of just like, well, okay, let's let's go to the place where we believe, where you believe you were born, right? Manga, Colombia. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And initially, you find. Well, nothing. I mean, very little, right? Like, you're hitting one roadblock after another when you're trying all the records in the town and the birth records and the orphanage records and so forth. But then something just straight out of a movie happens. <laughs> you
3: you get this idea. What was it? So the idea was, like, I would just go make an announcement, maybe through a newspaper, and say, I'm here. I'm looking for our mom. Uh, so we went to the newspaper And I had brought uh, the original black and white photos of our passport pictures of me and my sister that I had kept with me. Through the little glass window, I slid these two uh, pictures of these adorable little girls. And I said, is there any way I could buy a classified ad? And they said, we'll do better than that. We... We'll go ahead and write a full article uh, on you looking for your mom.
0: And the very day that it was published, a call came through.
3: So the story is, is that uh, our mother had gone to another town, left us with somebody who was supposedly a trusting uh, friend. And within three days of our mother leaving, we were, uh, in a sense, kidnapped and taken to the local orphanage where there was money exchanged for bringing children. And, uh, and then, so all of this happened in October. And then by February of the following year, we were at Norm and Chris's house adopted. Wow.
0: And she had been looking for you all that time, 30 some odd years.
3: 36 years. In fact, she did not leave the area that she lived. Uh, because her and her husband, she then married, uh, remarried. All their family was in Bogota, and they had a lot more support and resources in Bogota. But she said, absolutely not. This is where I lost my girls, and this is where they're going to come back and find me. And so I I am not moving at all.
0: Kidnappings like Castro's were not uncommon in the 70s and the 80s. Colombia was one of the world's top sending countries for international adoptions at the time, but the entire industry was rife with corruption and child trafficking on a global scale. In response, the UN established an international convention on adoption in 1993. So today, adopting children from foreign countries is far more regulated, but still far from perfect. Astrid Castro knew that reuniting with her birth mother would be emotional she had not expected it to be layered with so much trauma.
3: You know, I, I think I was in shock. Uh, and when I first met her, she knew that I was the right person. And she embraced me. And the only way I can describe it is, is when there's and like old movies where there's like an Italian woman who's widowed and she's throwing her body on the coffin of her beloved husband and she's wailing in this like really loud wail Um, but when she hugged me that was like inches away from my eardrum and just really powerful uh, and really hard.
0: The reunion healed some wounds but opened others Castro had not anticipated and it fundamentally changed her outlook on adoption. Up to that point, her advocacy and training work had been focused primarily on helping adoptive parents to do better.
3: Now, everything is rooted in the adoptee lived experience. So Castro began offering programs specifically
0: for adoptees and featuring their stories in every event she produced with her organization, Adoption Mosaic. She shifted the emphasis of her training, too, to equip everyone in the adoption equation, parents, children, even social workers, with the language and tools they need to have the conversations she wishes she'd had growing up. Castro says her parents were supportive of her work right from the start.
3: I will never forget the first time about 15 years ago, mom was visiting, mom and dad were visiting, uh, and I had a workshop that I had to go do. Then she said, well, can we come? And I took a deep breath, and I said, of course you can come. I would love to have you there. And workshop ends. Mom and I get in the car, and she closes the door. And she says, honey, I never knew. And I'm thinking, oh my goodness, here we go. And (laughs) I said, yeah. And she said, I never knew you were doing such great work. And you do know that if we had had an ostrich in our life, if we had had an adoption mosaic in our life, we would have done things very differently. And I couldn't even pull out of the parking lot because we just sat there in the car. And I said, I know, I know, of course I know. And from that moment on, they have attended everything that they can attend when it comes to the work that I'm doing.
0: That's a beautiful story. Thank you for sharing that, Astrid. Yeah, absolutely. Um, let's, I want to talk a bit about your birth mother. So um, what's your relationship with your birth mother today?
3: Amazing. With both my moms. And I say that because— I I couldn't exist. I wouldn't exist without all of my parents, all three of my parents, and the fact that they, um, all of them are trying their best to put aside their own traumas and their own pain around what it means to be here for me and be here for each other as a result is one of the most powerful and one of the most healing aspects of this reunion. And my birth mom, she has some struggles for sure around what it means for us to have been raised here in the United States and lose our Spanish. And um, my relationship with uh, my Colombian mom is we talk about every two weeks on the phone and I'm just really grateful to have her in my life. So where have
0: you landed on the issue of international adoption or inter-trans country adoption? Is that something that you encourage?
3: Mm, Excellent question. So as a professional, I actually don't take a stance on being anti-adoption or pro-adoption. I actually feel like that that is for us adoptees who our existence is around that question, right? So for us to be asked that question, and I'm asked that question all the time, uh, is just not fair because for me to answer that question has puts in... uh, into question my identity and my existence as a human being. And I know lots of adoptees who are very for, and I know lots of adoptees who are very against. And as a professional creating an organization, Adoption Mosaic, we want people to know that no matter where you are on your identity discovery or your identity journey of what it means, what what you had to lose in order to become an adopted person, what you had to navigate You get to determine and decide what part of that is right for you. I just want you to know that you don't have to do this alone. Also, there's no right answer. There's no right way to be an adopted person. There is, for every adopted person, there's a different way to be an an adoptee.
0: If, if you could change the way, sort of societally, we think about adoption, what? What what is the change you would like to see happen in American society, I guess, when we think about the narrative of adoption?
2: Mm.
3: So, I would say what I would like is for anyone who is considering adoption is to be an informed decision maker. So asking the big questions, right? And so when I think about ethical adoptions, I think about family preservation. I think about, has every resource been exhausted with regards to having this child stay within their birth family? If not, what about this child staying within their community? And stranger adoptions or inner country adoptions, um, sh- yeah, I don't, I don't know that there's a place for that in our future future, and yet I also know that we're really far away from that because in a lot of those sending countries, there's a lot of stigma like we had in the 40s, 30s, 40s, 50s in this country around adoption. So ethical
0: adoption would look like uh, the priorities would be family preservation, keeping the child as connected as possible to their community. If it gets to the place where you have to do transracial adoption, then you're thinking about providing the resources, the openness, the language, sort of that whole Continuum is that fair? Yes. Okay. And ideally, maybe in a perfect world, we wouldn't have to get to that last resort because we would find a way for children to stay within their communities, but in a way that they can thrive, right? Safe and thrive. Yeah. And that's sort of like, maybe that you know,
3: would that have been possible for you? Who, Who knows, right? Right. Right and And the reality is is we weren't thriving in with our mother. she was struggling, she didn't have the resources you know she uh, we were on the streets, you know, and her mental health and where she is even to date is hard to watch because it's not that simple of well, she should have just been given the resources or I hear younger adoptees asking the question of, well, if my parents had thirty to $50,000 or whatever an inter-country adoption cost, if they had that money, why didn't they just give it to my mother who was living on the streets? Uh, and the response to that is, is it's not that simple, at least it wasn't that simple in my case. And I, I struggle with Uh, survivor syndrome, you know, being here in this country and survivor guilt is, yeah, that's the term that, you know, um, I struggle with that. And so I have to deal with that for the rest of my life.
0: Ostrid, thank you very much for sharing your insights and your story today. I really, really appreciate it. Mm, Thank you. Thank you for having me. Ostrid Castro is an international transracial adoptee and CEO and founder of Adoption Mosaic. So I found Castro's description of ethical adoption really enlightening. Because on a logical level, I think we'd all nod in agreement to the statement that adoption should be a last resort. But how often do our subconscious assumptions about adoption as a win-win situation for kids and adoptive families lead us to speed through some of those decision points she mentioned? Have we really done all we can to support the birth family first? I think I am especially prone, as a white American, to endorse quality of life as a justification for adoption. I think children should not live in desperate poverty. But is the trauma of separation from biological family the best solution? Perhaps we can do better for children and families if we think about adoption as an opportunity, when it's absolutely necessary, to give a child more family— more loving connections and support, rather than simply a new one. Top of Mind is a production of BYU Radio. Today's episode was produced by Vanessa Goodman, Elena Beck, Amber Mortensen, and James Hoops, with help from me and Samuel Benson. We had sound design by Brandon Lewis and Spencer Hewitt. I'm Julie Rose. We'll talk soon.